that has been the most humbling and uh, perhaps valuable educational experience of my life. guest today is deeply passionate about integrating an entrepreneurial mindset and 21st century skills into middle and high school education. In 2015, she became a founding team member of Alterna, the fastest growing social entrepreneurship incubator in Central America. In 2018, she founded the eShip Bootcamp, a startup designed to inspire and give young adults hands-on experience in the world of entrepreneurship. Our guest is an experienced education innovator, having worked for Acton Academy Guatemala, where she empowered students to become self-directed learners. Currently, our speaker is using her experience and knowledge of the education system to build out an idea she's working on from her executive master's program at the University of Pennsylvania. The concept is to integrate more human and business skills into the K-12 education space to better prepare students for what's really out there when they graduated. We are honored to speak with Laura Smolian today. We're delighted that each of you could join us today. And Laura's going to kick off our talk with a presentation about her journey. So thanks so much, Laura. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura. Um, I am an educator, but it was not always in the plan to be an educator. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about my journey to get to where I am right now um, and take you guys on that ride, because I think it's important to give context um, into everything it is um, that that I'm doing right now. So so to just be honest and authentic as as honest and as authentic as possible. So. Um, like I said, being an educator was never in my plan. Um, I really rejected the traditional notion of being a teacher. Um, as someone who had a hard time in school and who was not a particularly stellar student, right? So I did well, I got by, but I was never really like in love with school. Um, I really never considered it to be a path, but I think that there was always a part of me that knew that somehow working with people was going to be a part of my calling. Um, when I was in, as just an anecdote, when I was in my junior year of, uh, of high school, so for anyone who's not in the US system, that means I was about 15, 16 years old at the time. Um, I had a teacher who asked us to do a presentation on an author that we had studied during the year. And everyone, you know, got up with their PowerPoints and they did like a nice little presentation and, you know, everyone clapped and then they were done. And I had studied Truman Capote, who at the time was a journalist uh, who did, who, who invented this whole new genre of like nonfiction crime, uh, like true crime um, stories. And I just thought it was great at the time. And so instead of doing a presentation, I thought it would be fun to dress, have everyone dress up and to do like a true crime scene story based off of a Capote story. And it was like the most amazing presentation ever. And I like everyone was so excited about it. And my teacher said, have you ever considered being a teacher? And my first reaction was get out of here. Like I will not only don't want to be a teacher, but that sounds like, like I do not, like that is not the life for me. I knew that I wanted to travel. I knew that I wanted to have adventures. I wanted to learn from the world, but like no way was I going to be cooped up in a classroom, like yelling at kids to be quiet for the rest of their lives. Cause that was my experience in school. 
I went to a traditional public school in the US. You know, we were like 40 kids in a class. We sat in rows. Not great, right? So the first, my first reaction when she said, have you ever thought about being a teacher? Was like, that is the last thing I will do with my life. So, you know, as time went on, I sort of realized this about myself. I, I was trying to figure things out by trial and error. I definitely didn't want to be judged by anyone else's criteria, which is a part of why I had such a hard time in the traditional system. Um, and I really, you know, as a kid, people always ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, or they say, you know, you're good at this. You should do this. Right. And I always really rejected that notion. Um, I was like much more curious, I guess, about figuring out who I was than what I wanted to do. And I was, you know, I was a curious kid. I was like always learning something and I was always seeking out experiences in the real world. So in high school, I was a sports player, but I, after I got out of my Saturday games, I would go to New York. I grew up in central New Jersey. Um, I would go to New York and I would take classes and then I would come back late at night and then I would do my homework all day on Sunday. And so it was, you know, I was constantly looking for new experiences to learn something new. I started a bunch of clubs in school. I like secretly applied to this trip and applied for a scholarship to go and study architecture in Greece and like showed up with my parents. And I was like, oh, by the way, I'm like going to do this thing this summer. I have like scholarship money. Like I don't need anything from you guys. Like, thanks so much. And they were like, what? Like we did, you didn't ask for permission. And I was like, yeah, but it's going to be great. Like, so I've always been really, really just interested in learning about the world and interested in traveling the world and interesting in learning about other people's perspective. And so that sort of took me to university. And when I got to university, I had really, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but what I did want to know was more about how like the world was working. So I sort of like closed my eyes and picked a major. I studied economics and political economy. At the same time, I just started interning. And so I was interning, interning. I had like two or three jobs at all times during school. And that was really how I started crossing off what I didn't want to do, but not what I, not any closer to figuring out what I did want to do, right? It was, you know, graduation starts getting closer, right? And you kind of start getting those butterflies in your stomach and you're like, you know, what is it really that, you know, I'm going to do when I grow up? And at the time it feels sort of binary. I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, but like, you know, people are like, okay, well, like, where's your first job? And like, that's so important for your career. And that's going to like jump off your career. And like, if I could go back in time now, I'd be like, don't listen to those people. Like, none of that matters, but I can't go back in time. So at the same time, I was like, okay, what is it that I've really like been working in? What is it that I'm interested in? And so I fell into the nonprofit sector. I started working at UNICEF, which then led me to a public relations firm called APCO Worldwide. I did another, I did another couple months there and then decided that I really wanted to work at a smaller nonprofit because I was really interested in getting connected with the people that I was working with. And so I was working in their education policy department at this nonprofit, actually closely with what is now the Biden administration um, at the time, but we were working on uh, domestic violence policy with the vice president's office. This was during the Obama administration. So I'm like, you know, I'm doing the New York thing. I'm, you know, studying, I'm working, I'm like figuring this whole thing out. And at the same time, I keep having this like antsy feeling in my stomach, right? Of like, what I really want to do is go back to what I did as a kid, right? Is to travel, to have new experiences and to learn from the world, right? 
I had had, as a, as a kid, um, I grew up in central New Jersey, like I mentioned, and it was sort of in a bubble. And so my mom had really been intentional about getting us out into the world. And so we had gone to Guatemala a couple times as children to on, you know, like pretty traditional, like mission trips, which, you know, probably didn't have much impact on the communities in the grand scheme of things, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But it did have a big impact on me. And I started to learn what different realities looked like. And so as I'm working in this job in New York and, you know, things are going well, my boss says, okay, we want to, she sat me down and she said, we want to promote you. What job do you want in the organization? And I just sat there and I stared at her blankly. And then I said, I just don't want to work here. And she was like, what? And I was like, I just don't want to work here. I don't know what I want to do, but I know it's not here. And so about a month later, I actually ended up resigning. Um, I had saved up a bunch by, you know, doing the New York thing and living like with a million people in one room. And I said, you want to know what? Like, okay, I have nothing to lose. I was 23 years old at the time. Let me just figure this out. Like, can I get back to Latin America and do something where I'm learning from people in community, right? Because I, you know, I just, I don't, it doesn't make sense to be here in an office building in New York when really I want to be out in the field. I want to be learning in the real world. So I started reaching out to my network and ended up getting in, a, in touch with a guy named Daniel Butchbinder, who started an organization called Alterna in Guatemala. And basically what Alterna is, is essentially like a social enterprise incubator. But they had an interesting hypothesis of working with rural entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs who normally wouldn't have access to infrastructure. And like some of the ecosystem tools that, you know, we had at the boot camp or that in general are available to, to entrepreneurs in cities and more and in more industrialized countries. So this was sort of his hypothesis. He had like three people working for him at the time. And he was like, well, just come down and like, let's do this for three months. And, um, let's figure things out. And so I said, okay, so I packed my bag for three months and, you know, it's been, I was there for about five years in Guatemala, not always at alternative, but in Guatemala. Long story short, it was an amazing experience. Um, I specifically discovered that I loved working in the startup world. I loved that limited structure. I loved really feeling like we were investigating and blazing a path, um, where there was no path before. It was also lots of hard work, which I loved. Um, but there, as time went on, I sort of started to reject this idea of like, I'm here to teach you what it means to be an entrepreneur. Um, and the reason for that is, is that many people in Guatemala are already entrepreneurs by nature. It's a country with very uh, little infrastructure, and that has made people scrappy. It has made people uh, work hard find the way to get through all of the bureaucratic, crazy, corrupt, um, corrupt uh, government structures and things like that. And so it was really interesting because I said, okay, here I am, you know, at the time, I think I was 24. I said, I can't, I don't have much to teach you about what it means to be an entrepreneur. So I started kind of treating it almost as a research project. So what are the tools that make people successful entrepreneurs, right? And so as we're doing boot camps, you know, we're working with, we're working, we're building out our methodology. I really started just sitting down and talking to the entrepreneurs. And it was interesting. What I discovered is that it wasn't, success in entrepreneurship didn't have to do with education. It didn't have to do with socioeconomic status, though those things can be influential, 
I actually saw that they could be barriers at some times too. Um, I always tell the story. I had this guy, um, Don Umberto. He was like the most amazing entrepreneur. He had, he sold these things that are called biodigestores, which are like essentially giant, um, giant like machines that produce cow poop to make manure. They're much more efficient that way. So, um, so anyway, so like I had no idea what he was doing, right? I, I have no background in agriculture, but he was like up five in the morning every day in his pickup truck from like the 1960s, driving out to villages, talking to farmers and like selling these biodigestores. And he was really successful doing it actually. And at the same time, I had like, you know, this trust fund kid who had come out of the best university in the country, et cetera, et cetera. And he had like won a bunch of awards in entrepreneurship. So I said, oh, this is interesting. And I ended up sitting down and talking to him and he actually had never made a sale. He was just really good at marketing. And so we have this kind of juxtaposition, right? Where we have like people who are really scrappy and who are successful and people who are, you know, have all of the right tools and right education to be successful and just aren't, aren't making it as entrepreneurs. And so I started to formulate this hypothesis about the entrepreneurial mindset. And I said, okay, well, this clearly has to go, this goes beyond just the superficial layer. This goes, you know, deeper. And you know, began thinking about the question, can you teach the entrepreneurial mindset? Is this something that can be learned? And I said, well, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to start with kids, right? Because we know that kids have like a more malleable mind than adults do. It's much harder to convince a 40-year-old to go out and knock on 50 doors and offer their product than it is like a 10-year-old, right? So I said, okay, let me start my own nonprofit. And so I was in the process of starting my own nonprofit, my own project, when I came across Acton Academy. You know, I always say the first time that I went to Acton was like, like life-changing because I walked in the front doors. They said, well, why don't you just go observe a class for a couple of days? And what I saw was really like pretty incredible. I saw a bunch of 12-year-old kids like lying down on beanbags discussing Thomas Hobbes' theory of free will. Um, there was no teacher in sight. Uh, the whole classroom, everyone was working independently on laptops. And like, by the way, these are 12-year-olds, right? So I'm like, okay, something's going on here. I want to learn what they're doing. This is fascinating. And they were completely self-directed. And so they originally hired me to be a middle school guide. Uh, and I began working with middle school students. And that has been the most humbling and uh, perhaps valuable educational experience of my life. Anyone who works with middle schoolers know, like, it, you know, they're just incredibly like raw and, um, and honest and fun and, you know, just in this awkward transition between being kids and becoming adults. And I just like loved it. And I fell in love with that role. Um, while I was there, I ended up building out the business curriculum, um, but that was actually the least important thing that I did when like, learning about this idea of the entrepreneurial minds. So what I really learned to do was to create learning environments and to structure a learning environment where an adult wasn't at the center. When adult isn't at the center, that means that kids have to build skills in order to manage themselves and to manage their community. So we had things like we created a class council um, that had a whole election process. They had weekly meetings where they discussed issues in the community. They had to collaborate. They had to communicate. 
they had to um, essentially learn how to reach agreements, negotiate. Um, and at the same time, they were doing all other sorts of things. So I learned, I started designing projects for them, um, which are which are designed with an agile methodology. So it's a six week project. And at the end, there's not a grade, but to, uh, they present their end results to either an expert or um, a group of parents or some sort of committee that gives them honest feedback on whatever it is that they're working on. So a clear example is we did um, a food classes and um, all my students learned all about the agriculture of Guatemala. We traveled around to different farms in Guatemala, like, the, like from the tiny, smallest organic farm to like this giant banana farm, right? So they learned all about different agricultural processes. And then at the end, they ended up cooking a meal for their parents with all of the products from the farms. And they talked about the different types of agriculture that we had and farming practices. So it's just like a very small example of the kinds of projects that we were doing. And at the same time, you know, I really started to see my students blossom, right? So by creating this learning environment where I wasn't the center, but I was sort of structuring the steps and scaffolding is the word I would use, their learning experiences, um, I really saw how empowered they became. So for example, something like coming on time. We made a rule that you had to be on time to, to morning discussions, right? And I showed up 10 seconds late once and uh, they did not let me into the classroom. And so there were dynamics that we ended up creating, which built this mutual trust. And I really saw that my students didn't need me. In fact, they had become so independent that they were proposing projects and new experiences, businesses to me instead of the other way around. And this was just like incredibly enlightening and awesome to watch. Um, and that really informed my philosophy as an educator, which is like students, kids, people, whatever, like they're already whole people. And the real goal as an educator is to guide students, learn to learn, learn to do how to do things and learn how to, you know, be the best version of themselves, I would say. I think it's a radical departure from the role of a teacher as like I knew it in public school in central New Jersey to say, you know, these are kids, even from, you know, the five-year-old, six-year-old who shows up at your door, they have a, already have a set of beliefs. They already have identities. They already have values that they've learned at. And as a teacher, your job is to really expose them to new perspectives, give them frameworks to learn new content and to see the world through different lenses. I also think it's important as an educator to show up and to see the best version of your students each day. I mean, I don't know how many of you had the experience where like your teacher was just like, stop talking, stop talking, like sit down, like, you know, pay attention. And I think that that diminishes kids to the lowest common denominator. But as you see, if you see each kid as the best version of themselves each day, when they show up, walk through your door, however it is that they're showing up that day, you can really then challenge them to show up as the best version every day of themselves every day too. And what I mean by that is like a middle schooler is going to come in in a terrible mood, right? And they're going to give you like, they're going to like talk back to you or something like that. And instead of meeting them where they're at, it's saying, hey, what's going on? I know that you're not this person, right? Like I've seen you in a different mood. Did something happen? And being able to challenge them to say, okay, you know, 
life is hard. We're going through, we're all going through a lot, especially this year, right? We're all going through so much. And, um, but at the same time, you do have this wonderful person inside of you that deserves to shine. So I think that formed like, and if I could boil this down to like a phrase, right? It would be, it's important to give kids skills for life, not content. So as like, I'm forming this policy and education, like this worldview in education, um, I ended up, uh, a couple things ended up happening in my life. Um, the first one is I started a business giving uh, entrepreneurial boot camps and seeing if we could take this mindset and apply it to kids who are outside of the school system and to make it more accessible to more kids. So I started something called the eShip Bootcamp. It had a lot of success. I grew up for about two years. And then in December of last year, um, you know, my world kind of turned upside down as I think it did for everyone uh, in the world or right before COVID. It's like pre-COVID, post-COVID. Um, so I got married and uh, my husband got transferred to Mexico like right away. And so it was like, okay, we're packing up our bags in January. We're sending everything over to Mexico. Um, we're married. And then all of a sudden I was, I was still transitioning out of my role um, in, as, as an educator at Acton and also as you know, the head of this business and uh, COVID hits. And so it was like, I had 24 hours to get out of the country. Guatemala closed its borders. I flew to the US um, where I'm originally from and, you know, said, okay, none of my plans are coming true this year. So how are we going to pivot? Right? Like every, like, let's take everything off the table. Like this is crazy. And actually my husband was in Brazil at the time. He got trapped in Brazil because of like everything that was happening with the borders. So anyway, so we're like in two different sides of the world and I'm like, all right, like what's going to happen next? So I sat down and I started thinking about what did I learn from the experience of both being an educator, working with entrepreneurs and, you know, building my own business. Right. And I really decided that what I wanted to do was to, to build my own business. And so I applied to a master's program in the U S called education entrepreneurship, um, at the university of Pennsylvania. And I've been in that program since August of this year. Um, I've been designing curriculum for different schools and really starting to position myself as a consultant in that aspect. And then through this program at Penn, I've been working on an idea for a business, which is how do we, which is based on my philosophy, essentially, which is how do we give skills to kids and prioritize skill-based learning instead of content-based learning? Um, we all know that this is incredibly important for the 21st century job marketplace. We know that, you know, companies are spending trillions of dollars now in upskilling their employees. We know that this learn to learn, learn to do, learn to be framework is going to be incredibly important as we move forward in the future and whatever happens in the economy. Um, so my business idea right now is currently in like, you know, it's like the fancy way to say it is stealth mode, but I'm still like really just figuring things out. Um, I'm starting user tests in the next couple of months. Um, and the idea is to have a platform that can integrate these skills easily into classrooms without any sort of teacher intervention. And so that's was probably a little bit longer than I wanted it to be. Um, but that's the, the story. And uh, I'd love to hear all of your questions and to learn from any of you who are out there who are educators as well. Thanks so much, Laura. That was in no way too long. You're really good at, at summarizing things, but um, I'd, I'd love to get into the work that you're doing right now um, a, a little bit more in depth. 
Um, I know you're looking at the U.S. first, and you and I talked a little bit about how inconsistent public education is here. Um, so I'd love to hear from you how, you know, training kids with 21st century skills, as you put it, um, could be better integrated with traditional education. So thank you for that question. So, so let me start by saying that schools have so many competing priorities right now that they're really in an impossible place. Um, and this is specifically in the U.S., but I'm sure I'd love to hear anyone who's working internationally, too, um, what, what your experiences are right now if you're in education. Um, in the U.S., teachers have been given an impossible job, and it's you have to get through this amount of content in a year. It's the same amount of content that they've always had to get through, but we're going to give you 30% of the time with your students, and we're going to be online. This just in, in itself as a premise means that teachers are overwhelmed, overworked, and really under-resourced. They don't, you know, everyone's sort of figuring it out on the fly. And the best teachers are now serving as guidance counselors. They're now serving as, as content deliverers. They're serving as like friends. They're serving as evaluators. You know, it's just grown. The role of a teacher this year, I think, has been challenged as it's never been challenged before in history, perhaps. So all of that being said, I, when, I, when I sat down and I started talking to teachers, they say, well, I know that skills are important. Like, I know that that's the most important thing, but I, I just don't have the time to get through them, right? I know my students aren't being prepared for the workforce by like learning about the Battle of Gettysburg and, you know, 17, whatever. But at the same time, I don't have the capacity to do a training in like, you know, growth mindset, for example. I just don't have the time. And so that's really where I started thinking, okay, if we're not going to expect teachers to be the, like, the content deliverers, what can we expect? So that's the whole idea. And if we go, actually go back to the, to the MIT bootcamp methodology where teachers become champions, right? Um, they're not the decision makers, so it's not the economic fire, but they're, the, they're really the people that are championing, championing their students to, um, to reach for new skills and to really become more prepared for, for what the 21st century is going to look like. And so the idea is actually borrowed from like organizations like code.org who really have like a full integrated platform that you, a teacher can like have an, a, like a quick lesson, but you don't need to be a computer science expert to be able to sign your kids up to learn coding, right? So the idea for these skills, um, which we're focusing on in three areas, which is like mindset skills, 4C skills, which is creativity, collaboration, uh, critical thinking, and communication. And then lastly, technological business skills. Um, so that's more of like where we talk about project management, that's more of um, coding and that kind of stuff. But the things that come before it are mindset and the four Cs. Um, and so that this would be a totally like end-to-end uh, uh, -end platform, I guess you could say, where the content is there, the activities are there, and the only thing that the teacher would need to do would be to champion this and to find an hour in their students' schedules um, that, they could, that they could use this platform. I find that distinction between sort of skill-based and content-based learning to be absolutely amazing, and I, I really, really like it. Well, okay, so one thing that 
as an engineer kind of pains me to admit, but I think those sort of social skills and the ability to work within a team, exceptionally valuable and more important than sort of the more technical business side skills, but also much harder to sort of teach. Um, and so I was hoping if you don't mind just talking a little bit more about how you'd go about sort of teaching those kinds of social skills. So thank you for that question. That's, that's really important. Um, you know, I think just quickly, if I can like, you know, get on my bully puppet, uh, pulpit a little bit and talk about like upskilling in general and go back to what the workforce is doing right now. A lot of what the workforce is trying to do is to take engineers who have been taught to think in a really valuable way, actually, a very logical step-by-step -step way and say, okay, now we need you to th do design thinking and think creatively, right? And you know, you've got someone who's like 40 years old and all of a sudden they're having to learn this new way of thinking. And it's really kind of unfair, I think, and inefficient to do it that way. Um, I do think that by starting early and by exposing kids to different ways of thinking and different methodologies from an early age, you can help them become a little bit more fluent in different types of thinking. And let me give you an example. There's, um, if anyone's read anything by Carol Dweck or heard about growth mindset, you know that by encouraging kids to think about their situation as temporary and to encourage them to grow from failure, experiences of failure. This can be incredibly liberating and actually help kids be more successful, not only in their academic studies, but later on in life as well. Um, and so things like saying, I haven't figured it out yet. I don't, I'm not, I'm not understanding algebra yet. Things like that help students like learn how to think in a different way, right? So there's all sorts of different experiences, activities that you can do to build these mindsets. Um, you know, in, the corporate world is doing it, right? I just, am, it's my opinion that they're doing it too late. And it's easier to do it with kids to work on these kinds of mindsets, um, which, you know, if, we, if we're really able to do it well, uh, then we can probably save the self-help industry um, some time and money. We could save the, uh, the corporate upskilling world some time and money um, by exposing kids at younger ages. Um, there's all sorts, like I, I can give like a very specific example too of an activity um, to, to do growth mindset. And it's one that I do with my students, which is called the rejection therapy challenge. And you have to go out and you have to get rejected a hundred times. Um, and until you get to know, so like you do crazy things, like you walk up to someone on the street and you say, Hey, can you give me 20 bucks? Right. And that person says like, what? No. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. And you move on. And so by learning that by failing, nothing happens to you. Right. The idea is that you become more fluent in trying new experiences in reaching for things that make you uncomfortable and breaking through those personal boundaries that we have. Um, now, it's harder to do that at age 40 than it is, again, at age 10, where my students would like crack up and like they loved thinking about like, you know, these crazy experiences, right? Like, oh, I, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to ask my mom, like, if she can, like, if we can go to Disney World tomorrow and, uh, you know, what, whatever it was, right? it ended up being a fun and joyful process where I think for someone who 
hasn't had that experience later on in life, it can actually be painful or it can be um, just perhaps not as impactful as it would have been if they had gotten exposed to it as a child. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's it's definitely harder for us to uh, change the more we get set in our ways, I think. Um, you seem like a person yourself that's been able to flex quite a bit. Um, and I was wondering if there were any particular individuals or events that you would say um, really influenced you personally or professionally, mentors or or just um, some point where you really had um, like an epiphany? Yes, I can think of like two major mentors um, and one was like at an inflection point in my career. Um, so as I was graduating, and again, I talked a little bit about this of saying like, I don't really know what I want to do when I grow up, um, but I'm like just about to graduate and like, I got to figure this out. Um, I had a mentor who was working, uh, you know, she's very successful in, in her international development. And I got hooked up with her through my university's mentorship program. And she said, okay, so you want to work in international development. Tell me a little bit about your experience working you know, doing this, these projects at UNICEF. And I was talking to her about it and she was like, well, you don't sound very excited. And I said, well, here's the thing. Like, you know, I was working, you know, UNICEF has offices at 125 Maiden Lane, which is a block away from Wall Street, right? So I was walking, I was taking the subway with my friends who were working on Wall Street, but they were making double what I was making. And we were doing the same job. Like we were all crunching numbers in Excel, right? And I was talking to her about this and I was like, I just want to like, go abroad. Like I want to learn about international development. I want to see how it's like failing or how it's not failing and what's working. And she was like, well, like, let me tell you this. If you work for an organization like UNICEF, if you become a career diplomat or if you become a career uh, international development expert, whatever that means, um, you won't go abroad until you're in your mid to late thirties because you don't have the experience. No one's going to send you abroad. And by the time you're in your 30s, you're likely going to have a family or something close to it. And you're just not going to want to travel the way that you do right now. And she said it to me so honestly that I just stared at her and I was like, okay, so I'm just going to invert that. I think it's important to learn first, to form my philosophy, to get out into the field with no preconceived notions about what international development is and learn about what is working and what isn't working before I get into like a big organization or before I start my own organization. So that was a big, that was a hugely important conversation for me because it helped me make the decision that I needed to go abroad on my own. I didn't need to wait for someone to give me permission to go abroad. Um, and then the second mentor that that really has just been influential for me is actually one of the owners of Acton Academy in Guatemala. Um, and her name is Gabby. And she has been incredibly influential in teaching me that communication is the most important skill that you can have, um, especially working with children and uh, seeking to really deeply listen to a child before you make a judgment. Um, and that has been uh, just life-changing for me. I, I don't think I would be a good entrepreneur if I didn't know how to listen before making my own judgment. 
I think that is, again, a, a very smart uh, observation. It's one of those skills that I think for some reason is um, far less common than should be, just the ability to not listen to someone to wait for what you want to say, but to actually sit there and contemplate what they're saying. And so I think that's a, a very good point. Um, now, I've personally had two pretty amazing teachers in my life that had a big impact on me. And I feel that a good teacher can massively um, improve our lives. This is probably a little bit in the weeds, but what I was hoping to get into a little bit would be, like, are there any small partway steps that the current education systems can make to move towards, as you said, a skill-based education over a content-based education, just to make a move towards it? Absolutely. Like, there's a great book. It's actually a theory in behavioral economics. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the name. Richard Thaler. Um, if anyone's ever read anything by Richard Thaler, he has this whole idea of like nudges, which are like small, tiny tweaks um, to, to situations that make people think about a situation different, differently, right? Um, in terms of like not overhauling the education system, burning everything down, like what are small tweaks that we can make and small steps we can make towards progress? Um, one of them, I would say, would be just simply changing the way that we evaluate students. Um, that is really easy to do um, as a teacher. You might still need to give a grade, but the type of feedback you give is incredibly, you know, important and you're modeling to your students how to give feedback, right? And not that there's like a, this is right, this is wrong. Um, so for example, um, instead of giving a test about like the war of 19... 12, let's say, I know. like, I clearly I was not like an excellent history student. I've forgotten all of my dates. Um, but instead of, you know, doing a test about that, right, you could essentially create a project and evaluate it by giving them feedback and having students give each other feedback in a group, right? So in the corporate world, whoever's in the corporate world knows that you're often doing 360 reviews, right? So one of the biggest problems that we have in groups is that like one person takes on too much of the work, like another person totally slacks off, there's bad communication, etc. So by giving a 360 review in something like how, how well do we communicate in the group? Um, who was the best at asking questions? Who was the best at um, really delivering results? Who was the best at et cetera, et cetera, right? Like presenting. Um, that can help students recognize their strengths in a really easy to do like way, I think, um, and uh, and really model to students what it looks like to value each student's individual strengths and to help them see areas that they can improve in. Right? Because if someone says like, "Listen, you didn't deliver anything, but you stood up and you gave an awesome presentation you could say okay well maybe i'm a great public speaker but like i gotta work on like actually getting the work done right um so instead of saying getting a c and saying like okay well i'm still gonna pass the class anyway right i got a 75 you get valuable feedback that can actually take that can actually form you as a person not only in recognizing what you're good at but recognizing what you still need to work on too that's one area there's i have a bunch of other can i just um Hi, I Temple Grandin. 
is a big advocate for skill-based learning. Have you, you know, read her books or heard her speak? I have not, but thank you for thank you for lifting her up. Um, I'm always I always love resources. Her name is Temple Granton. Yeah, Dr. Temple Brandon, she has autism, and um, she actually developed uh, a system that most, uh, I guess, um, like the meatpacking, or not meatpacking, but the slaughter industry uses um, for humane uh, slaughter of animals. Um, but she's an amazing... Uh, person, and she's a huge advocate for skill-based learning, um, especially for people with different, um, you know, that that think differently. So, Adriana, that's awesome, and I think that you know, there's a huge, there, there's so much to dive into with that, right? Um, and especially recognizing each individual's strengths and talents. I think that especially like, I, I mean, I don't know, I think in the US educational system, it tends to be a little too binary thinking about people like, okay, you're either like, you have to be good at math and English, otherwise like you're not a good student, right? But there's a deeper set of skills, talents, um, you know, callings that we all have that really are not taken into account in what we consider the educational system, right? So I'd love to read. Um, I'd love to read her work, and thank you for lifting that up. I think that's a really important point. Yeah, and there's an HBO. There's also an HBO movie starring um, Claire Danes, who played her. It's phenomenal because she does say that it's a very accurate, accurate portrayal of how she thinks um, and her life. So. I highly recommend um, watching that and just watching her TED Talk. Um, I had the privilege of interviewing her actually two weeks ago. Um, and it was, she's amazing. An amazing woman. Fabulous. I can't wait to dive in. That's a great resource. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Adriana. And Spencer has posted, I believe, the author on the questions and discussion channel. And then um, Laura, the book you were talking about, is that Nudge by Thaler and Sustine? Yes. Um, there's another one also that I mentioned called Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck that I would definitely put in there as required re reading for any educator. Awesome. Well, and I, I'm not personally an educator, but as a, a wellness coach and, and someone that has you know worked in a mentorship capacity with middle schoolers, I, I completely identify with the, the methodology that you're talking about. So I think I'll have to check both of those out. Matt Belezzo has a question. So uh, first of all, great talk. Second, my question is about, you mentioned uh, working on weaknesses and it remembered me of some of the content I've read. I don't remember exactly where that says, Sometimes we focus too much on working on our weaknesses and we should instead be doubling down on our strengths. And I personally usually work on my weaknesses as a, as a rule of thumb. 
So I would like to know if you have an, any opinion on that, not only in self-development, but also in your, your education field of others. Yeah, that's such an important question, Matt. I think that it's, um, it's, it's tricky, right? Because we always want to be better, especially if you're like tend to be a little bit more type type A, right? Like, or like high achieving, you're like, okay, well, like, how can I improve myself? How can I improve myself? Right. Um, but I think that there's, uh, I think you're right. It's tricky. You can definitely fall too far into working on your weaknesses and, you know, your strengths won't continue to be your strengths if you don't continue to work on them. Right. So it's like, I can be, a, let's say I can be a great runner, right? Like, and I can just have like a natural ability to run and, um, but I could be a terrible, I don't know, uh, terrible at yoga. If I only do yoga, right, five years later, I go back to running. Guess what? I'm not going to be very good at running. It's going to take me a long time to keep running. So I think finding that balance is the ideal. Um, I think when it goes, when it relates to education, um, we need to keep that in mind, too, and not just focus on students' weaknesses. I think a lot of educators fall into that trap. My students aren't getting um, good, like my students' grades aren't that great for this like unit, right? Like a social studies unit. Um, my students are talk too much. My students are talk back in the classroom, right? So if you're only focusing on the negative, that's all you're gonna see and your educational like approach to the classroom uh, is going to be focused on managing for the weaknesses which actually for me, in my opinion, also brings the rest of the group down, right? So if we're focusing on the worst qualities, it's like not a great place to be. And again, everyone's been in the classroom, like the teacher's just like yelling at you to be quiet for 50 minutes and then you go to your next class, right? Like that's not a nice place to be, that feels bad. Um, but when you focus on your class strengths as an educator, and if you say, okay, so my class is chatty, that means that they're engaged, right? Like whether it's with each other, whether it's with the material, like it means that they're engaged. How can I harness this energy and channel it towards an end goal, right? So maybe you tap your two like chattiest kids to be like, uh, to lead two projects, but also to be the group, the person that like keeps the group in line um, when the teacher needs to like talk about something, right? So you take their like strengths, which could be perceived like as a weakness if you look at it just through a different lens. And you say, okay, you're chatty, great. Like you're gonna be the person who's in charge of this. And you're also in charge of keeping your group in line. So by using, like focusing on the strengths of the group, I think it makes it just like a nicer place to be, which then makes learning easier, which then makes everyone happier. Um, and it sounds maybe like a little, you know, it's not always that simple, but I think starting from that approach makes it um is an important step to take in education that i think uh, a lot of teachers have not taken yet thanks so much that makes a lot of sense got a lot to think about with your answer hi laura uh, inspirational journey by the way i really like the way you move out of your comfort zone going into a foreign country and and work with entrepreneurs um, I'm actually just wondering when when can we have you in South Africa? We need you in in Southern Africa. Uh, you've got some really exciting and interesting ideas. My my, my question is um, your methodology. What would you say is it more applicable to, to 
uh, maybe the equivalent of lower school and, and high school in, in the US. So here we call it primary and secondary education. And, and then the, the second part of the question is, is what recommendation uh, or recommendations would you give for incorporating your methodology into entrepreneurial ecosystem? Okay, so um, first of all, if you're in South Africa, I know an awesome educator who is working on the African continent, who's starting a network of schools that's very similar to Acton. Um, so I can absolutely put you in touch with someone who's who's really amazing. And she's originally based in, um, I believe she's in Nigeria, but she started a school in Kenya, and I believe she's looking at South Africa. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to connect you with her. And to go to your question about like the educational, what ages is this, is this um, directed towards? So a, a really kind of simple way of looking at this is just the younger the kid is, the more malleable their mindset is, right? So it's easier, the younger that you intervene, the easier it's gonna be to mold the mindset into, into one that's proactive, entrepreneurial, um, uh, you know, focused on growth, not meeting expectations, things that, things of that nature. Um, if it becomes like the water that a student is swimming in, uh, it just, it flows better. So the younger, the better is my general philosophy. Where I really think it has the most impact, however, is it an intervention at a middle school level, late middle school, early high school. Um, when we're talking about how to apply these mindsets and skills to the real world, because that's really when kids start kind of taking their own personal beliefs, lessons, values, and they start comparing it with what the world's values are and kind of creating not just like a view of their own small network of friends and family, et cetera, but start reconciling with that, with what happens in the world, right? So maybe in my family, it was important to um, always be honest. Well, guess what? In the real world, not everyone's honest. So how do I reconcile those two points of view, right? And then also at that age is where kids really start thinking about, like, what is it that I'm going to do? Like, am I going to go to college? Do I want to go to college? Does that make sense for me? What might I want to study in college? Um, and so I, I really think that they're primed for an intervention as to, like, uh, being guided as to what's out there and not just, like, what is it, what it is that you want to do, but who is it that you want to be? And then you can translate that into a lot of different careers. I'm sure many people on this call have had more than one job in more than one sector, right? But we don't tell that to kids, right? It's kind of like this dirty secret that we have of like, you know, the world is not binary, right? Like we can, we can change our minds, we can do different things. And so I, I think I would say like that age group is, is really, really important for, you know, orienting to how are these skills applicable in the real world? And then lastly, how can you integrate them into, into I, I think if I understood the question correctly, it's how can you integrate them into your business or that entrepreneurial ecosystem? I think it's just really recognizing that these skills are valuable and they are what make people successful. There's a really interesting study done by a company called Burning Glass Technologies um, that talks about how technological skills, when combined with these, like what we call soft skills, or like I call them mindset and 4C skills, um, you know, just they, they analyzed over 10,000 job descriptions and there's actually a 38% salary increase 
if you have both of these skills, right? So the technological or business skills like project management, et cetera, plus these soft skills, salaries are higher. So companies need people who are adaptable and who can code, right? People need people who are creative, who can think outside of the box and who know how to take a project from point A to point Z, right? So I think in terms of, of like the entrepreneurial ecosystem, just really like lifting these skills up and saying like, hey, these are valuable. We need people who have these two kinds of fluencies and we need and we recognize that these soft skills are harder to teach than the hard skills. Right. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I hope so. It, it does. Thanks. I, I really like the, the particularly your response with regards to the, the level at, at, at school, which which is applicable. I, I also uh, like your, your your insights on, on the entrepreneur ecosystem, how you can incorporate um, those. Thanks. I think, so, I think something that's just like as a quick side note. So through my work in Guatemala, I saw that a lot of entrepreneurial kids actually got that like spirit kind of, I don't want to say like beaten out of them in school, but like definitely it was squashed in school, right? So the kids who were creative, who were like doodling in class, for example, stop that, put your, like, put your pencil down, like pay attention, right? So I, again, I go back to like these entrepreneurial skills are so incredibly important. And the more we can orient education to lifting these skills up, the better off I think we'll be as, as a society, as a worldwide society. Oh, that's a great point. And, and well said today, I, I really appreciate all of your insight, Laura, um, both in, into kind of the, the business mechanical side of uh, operational side of how um, things have actually come to be and worked in your journey, and then also um, your experience in the education system and the way your mind works is really inspiring. Um, so just being mindful of, of your time, I feel like we could probably keep going with another hour of questions. Um, but we really like to ask people at the end, um, if there's any particular, you know, best lesson or takeaway from your, your journey or words of wisdom you might want to leave us with. It can even be something that someone else gave you. Yeah, there are a couple that come to mind. The first one would just be the like focusing on skills, um, putting skills first before content. And I think that that applies to everyone, whether or not you're in an uh, educational setting or in a corporate setting, nonprofit, et cetera. Um, but recognizing the people that you work for have skills and focusing on those skills um, before focusing on the um, on what it is the job that needs to get done. I think that you know employees when they're taking care of students when they're taking care of um, when they feel like they're seen fully for who they are and their identity and their strengths are recognized and valued. Um, the work flows after that. Um, and it flows in a deeper way and it builds a trust in um, a way that's hard to replicate um, when you just focus on content. Uh, so I think that I would encourage everyone to, to really take a step back and to look at the skills um, that like you personally have, that whoever's on your team has, or if you're an educator or what your students have, um, and really, really lift those up um, and to focus on, on those um, first before anything else. Um, and then the second thing I would say is just like, you know, the world sort of feels like it's on fire right now. Right. And, you know, we can't, 
it's hard to to talk about the future without talking about what's happened um, politically, uh, economically, socially, from a public health perspective this year. Um, and so I think that there's a mix here of saying, okay, we need to be um, empathetic with ourselves, uh, compassionate with ourselves, with one another, recognizing that this year has just been incredibly difficult for so many different people, um, students, especially with students. Um, we're asking them to do pretty much the impossible. And so really just focusing in on empathy, um, I think is something that has given me great solace here and has helped me say, like, there's not a single person this year, like, except for maybe like Jeff Bezos, who's made like billions and billions of dollars, but like, like everyone is going through something, right? Like everyone has had a struggle this year and um, really honoring that and the resilience that will come from that um, is, is something that has really helped me to, to look at the positive that's coming out of like, whatever this, <laughs> this crazy, year and looks like will be the next couple months as well um has been and so empathy and skills um would be my my parting message thank you so much laura i really appreciate that and thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us i think it's been an exceptionally interesting talk we really appreciate you all bringing your perspective and energy to today's discussion yeah absolutely thanks so much laura have a great day everyone Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for the presentation, Laura. Thank you. This has been Nancy and Spencer on Founders Voyage Weekly Podcast. Our speaker each week can be reached through our Discord server. Our intro and outro music is from the song Something for Nothing by Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. We'll be back again next week for another episode. Until then, have a great day and continue your voyage.